this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ana Sofia Simão de Portugal. The Rosary by Florence L. Barclay. Chapter 25. The Doctor's Diagnosis. So you express no opinion? Explain nothing? Let him go on believing that. Oh, Dickie, and you might have said so much. In quiet the Scotch Sabbath morning, Jane and the doctor had climbed the winding path from the end of the terrace, which zigzagged up to a clearing amongst the pines. Two fallen trees at a short distance from each other provided convenient seats in full sunshine, facing a glorious view, down into the glen, across the valley, and away to the purple hills beyond. The doctor had guided Jane to the sunnier of the two trunks, and seated himself beside her. Then he had quietly recounted practically the whole of the conversation of the previous evening. I express no opinion. I explain nothing. I let him continue to believe what he believes, because it is the only way to keep you on the pinnacle where he has placed you. Let any other reason for your conduct than an almost infantile ignorance of men and things be suggested and accepted, and then you'll come, my poor Jane and great will be the fall. Mine shall not be the hand thus to hurl you headlong. As you say, I might have said so much, but I might also have lived to regret it. I should fall into his arms, said Jane recklessly, and I would sooner be there than on a pinnacle. Excuse me, my good girl, replied the doctor. It is more likely you would fall into the first express going south. In fact, I'm not certain you'd wait for an express. I can almost see the Honorable Jane quitting yonder little railway station, seated in an empty coal truck. No, don't start up on a tent to stride about among the pine needles, continued the doctor, pulling Jane down beside him again. You'll only trip over a fir cone and go headlong into the valley. It is no use forestalling the inevitable fall. Oh, Dickie! sighed Jane, putting her hand through his arm, and leaning her bandaged eyes against the rough tweed of his shoulder. I don't know what has come to you today. You are not kind to me. You have harrowed my poor soul by repeating all Garth said last night, and, thanks to that terribly good memory of yours, you have reproduced the tones of his voice in every inflection, and then, instead of comforting me, you leave me entirely in the wrong and completely in the lurch. In the wrong, yes, said Eric. In the lurch, no. I did not say I would do nothing today. I only said I could do nothing last night. You cannot take up a wounded thing and turn it about and analyze it. When we bade each other good night, I told him I would think the matter over and give him my opinion today. I will tell you what has happened to me, if you like. I have looked into the inmost recesses of a very rare and beautiful nature and I have seen what havoc a woman can work in the life of the man who loves her. I can assure you, last night was no pastime. I woke this morning feeling as if I had, metaphorically, been beaten black and blue. Then what do you suppose I feel? inquired Jane pathetically. You still feel yourself in the right, partially, replied Eric, and so, as long as you think you have a particle of justification and cling to it, your case is hopeless. It will have to be, I confess, can you forgive? 
But I acted for the best, said Jane. I thought of him before I thought of myself. It would have been far easier to have accepted the happiness of the moment and chanced the future. That is not honest, Jeanette. You thought of yourself first. You dared not face the possibility of the pain to you if his love cooled or his admiration warmed. When one comes to think of it, I believe every form of human love, a mother's own accepted, is primarily selfish. The best chance for Dalmain is that his helpless blindness may awaken the mother love in you. Then, Selfie will go to the wall. Ah, me, sighed Jane. I am lost and weary and perplexed in this bewildering darkness. Nothing seems clear. Nothing seems right. If I could see your kind eyes, boy, your heart voice would hurt less. Well, check off the benches and look, said the doctor. I will not, cried Jane furiously. Have I gone through all this to fail at last? My dear girl, this self-imposed darkness is getting on your nerves. Take care it does not do more harm than good. Strong remedies. Hush! whispered Jane. I hear footsteps. You can always hear footsteps in a wood if you hearken for them, said the doctor. But he spoke low and then sat quiet, listening. I hear Carl's step, whispered Jane. Oh, Dickie, go to the edge and look over. You can see the winding of the path below. The doctor stepped forward quietly and looked down up and away they had ascended. Then he came back to Jane. Yes, he said. Fortune favors us. Dalmain is coming up the path with Simpson. He will be here in two minutes. Fortune favors us? My dear Dickie, of all mischances. Jane's hand flew to her bandage, but the doctor stayed her just in time. Not at all, he said, and do not fail at last in your experiment. I ought to be able to keep you two blind people apart. Trust me and keep dark, I mean, sit still. And can you not understand why I said fortune favors us? Dalmain is coming for my opinion on the case. You shall hear it together. It will be a saving of time for me, and most enlightening for you to mark how he takes it. Now keep quiet. I promise you shall not sit on your lap, but if you make a sound, I shall have to say you are a bunny or a squirrel, and throw fur cones at you. The doctor rose and sauntered round the bend of the path. Jane sat on in darkness. Hello, Dalmain, she heard Derek say. Found your way up here, an ideal spot. Shall we dispense with Simpson? Take my arm. Yes, replied Garth. I was told you were up here, Brand, and followed you. They came round the bend together, and out into the clearing. Are you alone? asked Garth, standing still. I thought I heard voices. You did, replied the doctor. I was talking to a young woman. What sort of young woman? asked Garth. A buxom young person, replied the doctor, with a decidedly touchy temper. Do you know her name? Jane, said the doctor recklessly. Not Jane, said Garth quickly. Jean, I know her, my gardener's eldest daughter. Rather weighed down by family cares, poor girl. I saw she was weighed down, said the doctor. I did not know it was by family cares. Let us sit on this trunk. Can you call up the view to mind? Yes, 
replied Garth. I know it so well. But it terrifies me to find how my mental pictures are fading. All but one. And that is? asked the doctor. The face of the one woman, said Garth in his blindness. Ah, my dear fellow, said the doctor. I have not forgotten my promise to give you this morning my opinion on your story. I have been thinking it over carefully, and have arrived at several conclusions. Shall we sit on this fallen tree? Won't you smoke? One can talk better under the influence of the fragrant weed. Garth took out his cigarette case, chose a cigarette, lighted it with care, and flung the flaming match straight onto Jane's cleft hands. Before the doctor could spring up, Jane had smilingly flicked it off. What nerve! thought Derek with admiration. Ninety-nine women out of a hundred would have said ah and given away the show. Really, she deserves to win. Suddenly, Garth stood up. I think we shall do better on the other log, he said unexpectedly. It is always in fuller sunshine. And he moved towards Jane. With a bound, the doctor sprang in front of him, seized Jane with one strong hand and drew her behind him then guided Garth to the very spot where she had been sitting. How accurately you judged the instance, he remarked, backing with Jane towards the further trunk. Then he seated himself beside Garth in the sunshine. Now for our talk, said the doctor, and he said it rather restlessly. Are we sure you are alone? asked Garth. I seem conscious of another presence. My dear fellow, said the doctor. Is one ever alone in a wood? Countless little presences surround us. Bright eyes peep down from the branches. Furry tails flick in and out of holes. Things unseen move in the dead leaves at our feet. If you seek solitude, shun the woods. Yes, replied Garth. I know, and I love listening to them. I meant a human presence. Brand. I'm often so tried by the sense of an unseen presence near me. Do you know, I could have sworn the other day that she, the one woman, came silently, looked upon me in my blindness, pitied me, as her great tender heart would do, and silently departed. When was that? asked the doctor. A few days ago. Dr. Rob had been telling us how he came across her in ah, I must not say where. Then he and Miss Gray left me alone, and in the lonely darkness and silent, I felt her eyes upon me. Dear boy, said the doctor, you must not encourage this dread of unseen presences. Remember, those who care for us very truly and deeply can often make us conscious of their mental nearness, even when far away, especially if they know we are in trouble and needing them. You must not be surprised if you are often conscious of the nearness of the one woman, for I believe, and I do not say it lightly, Belmain, I believe her whole heart and love and life are yours. Good Lord! exclaimed Garth, and springing up, strode forward aimlessly. The doctor caught him by the arm. In another moment, he would have fallen over Jane's feet. Sit down, man, said the doctor, and listen to me. You gain nothing by dashing about in the dark in that way. I'm going to prove my words, but you must give me your calm attention. Now listen. 
we are confronted in this case by a psychological problem, and one which very likely has not occurred to you. I want you for a moment to picture the one man and one woman facing each other in the Garden of Eden, or in the moonlight, whatever it was, if you like better. Now, will you realize this? The effect upon a man of falling in love is to create in him a complete unconsciousness of self. On the other hand, the effect upon a woman of being loved and sought, and the responding to that love and seeking, is an accession of himself self-consciousness. He, longing to win and take, thinks of her only. She, called up to yell and give, as her mind turned at once upon herself. Can she meet his needs? Is she all he thinks her? Will she be able to content him completely, not only now, but in the longer vista of years to come? The more natural and unconscious of self she had been before, the harder she would be hit by this sudden, overwhelming attack of self-consciousness. The doctor glanced at Jane on the log six yards away. She had lifted her clasped hands and was nodding towards him, her face radiant with relief and thankfulness. He felt he was on the right tack. But the blind face beside him clouded heavily, and the cloud deepened as he proceeded. You see, my dear chap, I gather from yourself she was not of the time of feminine loveliness you were known to admire. Might she not have feared that her appearance would, after a while, have failed to content you? No, replied Garth with absolutely finality of tone. Such a suggestion is unworthy. Besides, had the idea by any possibility entered her mind, she would only have had to question me on this point. My decision would have been final. My answer would have fully reassured her. Love is blind, quoted the doctor quietly. They lie who say so, cried Garth violently. Love is so far-seeing that it sees beneath the surface and delights in beauties unseen by other eyes. Then you do not accept my theory, asked the doctor. Not as an explanation of my own trouble, answered Garth, because I know the greatness of her nature would have lifted her far above such a consideration. But I do indeed agree as to the complete oblivion to self of the man in love. How else could we ever venture to suggest to a woman that she should marry us? Ah, Bren, when one thinks of it, the intrusion into her privacy, the asking the right to touch even her hand at will. It could not be done unless the love of her and the thought of her had swept away all thoughts of self. Looking back upon that time, I remember how completely it was so with me. And when she said to me in the church, How old are you? Ah, I did not tell you that last night. The revulsion of feeling brought about by being turned at that moment in upon myself was so great that my joy seemed to shrivel and die in horror at my own unworthiness. Silence in the wood. The doctor felt he was playing a losing game. He dared not look at the silent figure opposite. At last he spoke. Dalmain, there are two possible solutions to your problem. Do you think it was a case of Eve holding back in virginal shyness, expecting Adam to pursue? Ah, no, said Jane emphatically. We had gone far beyond all that. Nor 
could you suggest it, did you know her? She is too honest, too absolutely straight and true to have deceived me. Besides, had it been so, in all these lonely years, when she found I made no sign, she would have sent me word of what she really meant. Should you have gone to her then? asked the doctor. Yes, said Gar slowly. I should have gone, and I should have forgiven, because she is my own. But it could never have been the same. It would have been unworthy of us both. Well, continued the doctor, the other solution remains. You have admitted that one woman came somewhat short of the conventional standard of beauty. Your love of loveliness was so well known. Do you not think, during the long hours of that night, remember how new it was to her to be so worshipped and wanted? Do you not think her courage failed her? She feared she might come short of what eventually you would need in the face and figure always opposite you at your table. And, despite her own great love and yours, she thought it wisest to avoid future disillusion by rejecting present joy. Her very love for you would have harmed her to this decision. The silent figure opposite nodded and waited with clasped hands. Derek was pleading her cause better than she could have pleaded it herself. Silence in the woods. All nature seemed to hush and listen for the answer. Then, no, said Gar's young voice unhesitantly. In that case, she would have told me your fear, and I should have reassured her immediately. Your suggestion is unworthy of my beloved. The wind sighted in the trees. A cloud passed before the sun. The two who sat in darkness shrivered and went silent. Then the doctor spoke. My dear boy, he said, and a deep tenderness was in his voice. I must maintain my unalterable belief that to the one woman you are still the one man. In your blindness her rightful place is by your side. Perhaps even now she is yearning to be here. Will you tell me your name and give me leave to seek her out? Hear from herself her version of the story, and, if it be as I think, bring her to you to prove in your affliction her love and tenderness. Never, said Garth, never, while life shall last. Can you not see that, if when I had sight and fame and all heart could desire, I could not win her love, what she might feel for me now, in my helpless blindness, could be but pity, and pity from her I could never accept. If I was a mere boy three years ago, I'm a mere blind man now, an object of kind commiseration. If indeed you are right, and she mistrusted my love and my fidelity, it is now out of my power forever to prove her wrong and to prove myself faithful. But I will not allow the vision of my beloved to be dimmed by these suggestions. For her complexion, she needed so much more than I could give. She refused me because I was not fully worthy. I prefer it should be so. Let us leave it at that. It leaves it to loneliness, said the doctor sadly. I prefer loneliness, replied Garth's young voice, to this illusion. Hark, I hear the first gong, Brand. Marjorie will be grieved if we keep her Sunday dishes waiting. He stood up and turned his, his sightless face towards the view. Ah, how well I know it, he said. 
when Miss Grace Gray and I sit up here, she tells me all she sees, and I tell her what she does not see, but what I know is there. She's keen on art, and on most of the things I care about. I must ask for an arm, Brand, though the path is wide and good. I cannot, cannot risk a tumble. I have come one or two awful croppers, and I promised Miss Gray. The path is wide. Yes, we can walk two abreast, three abreast if necessary. It is when we have this good path made. It used to be a steep scramble. Three abreast, said the doctor. So we could, if necessary. He stepped back and raised Jane from her seat, drawing her cold hand through his left arm. Now, my dear fellow, my right arm will suit you best. Then you can keep your stick in your right hand. And thus they started down through the wood, on that lovely Sabbath morn of early summer, and the doctor walked erect between those two severed hearts, uniting and yet dividing them. Just once, Cars paused and listened. I seem to hear another footstep, he said, besides yours and mine. The wood is full of footsteps, said the doctor, just as the heart is full of echoes. If you stand still and listen, you can hear what you will in either. Then let us not stand still, said Garth. For in old days, if I was late for lunch, Marjorie used to spank me. End of chapter 25